Um, in this stretch between um, Thanksgiving and Christmas, the church historically pauses to remember the Christmas story. Um, but you need to know we don't do that to just become sentimental. We don't do that just for nostalgia's sake, all those that those things certainly happen, uh, sentimentality and nostalgia, but we, we actually do it for something far deeper than that. We remember and retell the story of the coming of Jesus, the first advent, because we're trying to give ourselves the courage to believe that his second advent is real too. That one day he is coming back and that's really hard to believe sometimes. And so if we, if we doubt it, if we are not sure of it, if nothing in our world seems to help us believe that, we retell the story of the first coming to give us hope and courage uh, for the second coming. So we are going to be looking at the birth narrative. This is our last sermon in the series. Next, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. We're gonna be doing some uh, traditional Christmas Eve services next Sunday. Um, and so we will, we will not have a sermon or, or a homily in that time, but we are gonna be singing some carols and reading some scripture. But this is our last sermon in the series. So we're looking, we're closing the series out with the birth narrative, maybe the most uh, well-known of all birth narrative accounts uh, from the book of Luke. So if you will turn your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter two, starting in verse one. The reading of the word of the Lord says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from, their, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And, when they, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So perhaps the most nostalgic of all Christmas readings, this scene of the birth of Jesus, this angels coming to the shepherds outside Bethlehem scene. Um, if you're familiar with Charlie Brown Christmas, this is the passage that Linus gives at the end. His monologue recounts this passage. But what's interesting about this being so nostalgic for many of us, what's interesting about this being so familiar even with many of us and seemingly so calm and serene is that this is actually a violent scene. 
It's a shocking scene. It's, 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 a, it's a disruptive scene. Uh, the, the shepherds who first experience this at first don't necessarily think that this is super uh, calm and serene. They are experiencing terror and dread. These shepherds who would have been outsiders, these shepherds who would have been nobodies, these shepherds who in our modern day, uh, the closest equivalent I can imagine uh, is like a garbage worker. Like you're thankful they exist, but you're not like hoping that your children turn out to be one and you're, you kind of stay away from them. You're not like inviting them over for Christmas dinner. Like they're, they're literally and maybe even um, metaphorically unclean to you. That's what, how these shepherds would have been viewed. It's one of the three lowest roles on the societal hierarchical, like vocational scale. You didn't grow up hoping to be a shepherd. Um, and literally because of your dealing with the animals, you were unclean to go to the temple. So you were outcast like societally, like you go out there outside of the city and keep your dirt and filth away from us. And then you're also outside from the actual temple. You couldn't even go in. So they're in every sense of the word, like a forgotten and an outcast people. And the angels come to them and look at how the angel, the first, at first we just get one angel and then there's kind of a heavenly host. But at first we get one angel and listen to how the shepherds experience this violent scene as it first unfolds. Jesus has been born just, you know, shortly before, whether that's minutes or hours, I don't know. But immediately after these, these angels come to these shepherds, or this angel comes to the shepherd and look at how the shepherds respond to the angel visit. Verse nine, part of verse nine. And they were filled with great fear. Now we hear that and we think, okay, well, yeah, angels, every time angels show up, like we've looked at the last couple of weeks, an angel shows up to Zechariah and then an angel shows up to Mary to tell that Gabriel shows up uh, to tell them uh, that uh, they're, they're going to be with child. They're afraid too. And so we think kind of like, okay, well, yeah, so the angel showing up makes people be afraid and that's true, but there's something a little bit deeper here. This experience of the angels is notably different than every other experience of the angels or an angel in the New Testament. In the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, Koine Greek, ancient Greek, uh, the term here is this. These are the three little literal words. When we read, uh, they were filled with great fear. Here's what it says in the Greek. It says mega, which is a superlative, like the most, the highest mega. And then it says phobos phobos, which is where we get our English word phobia, like to be afraid of something. It's an intense fear. Mega phobos phobos. They were really greatly afraid, afraid. Luke is trying to communicate a level of fear and he doesn't know how to make it any more superlative. He's using the highest superlative and then he doubles the word. They were mega fabas fabas. One New Testament scholar said, it could be said that no one is as afraid in the entire New Testament as these shepherds were in this moment. No one's more afraid than they were. These shepherds are an embodiment of fear. So much so when the angel shows up, the old King James, the one that Linus reads at the end of Charlie Brown Christmas, he says, and they were sore afraid, S-O-R-E. They were so afraid it hurt their bodies. Like they're in physical pain because of how afraid they are in this moment. Like if you've had a severe panic attack or you're grief stricken, like where your body joins the emotional experience, like it's always during the emotional experience, but like you feel it in your bones. Like I am in pain because of how afraid and anxious I am right now. They were sore afraid. So what are they so afraid of? Why are these shepherds at this angelic visit more afraid than any other angelic visit in the entire New Testament? Well, anytime uh, anyone sees an angel, they tend to be afraid. 
and so angels, anytime an angel shows up to people, their, their first words are always, do not be afraid, which lets the reader know everyone's first afraid when they see an angel. And that's going on. They are enormous figures of light. They are, they are, they are intimidating creatures. We don't know how big they are, but the Bible would describe them to be very intense in their, in their very presence. But on another level, these angels are emissary representatives of the divine. They are literally coming from the throne room of God, bearing with them the weight of representing the force of the power of the Almighty. They bring, they are not Jesus, they are not God, but they bring his presence to bear when they come to people. And anytime people encounter the presence of God, which these angels represent and carry with them, especially on the announcement of the arrival of Jesus, like the night of his birth, they're literally like carrying with them the presence of Jesus and the announcement for this. Anytime anyone experiences the full presence of God, people are terrified. They're, They're sore afraid. Isaiah chapter six in the Old Testament, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah gets this vision in the temple. He gets to go into the Holy of Holies and he catches a glimpse of the presence of God in all of its fullness. And he falls on his face because he's so afraid. He says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Like he cannot bear to stand the weight of being in the presence of God. And so Isaiah, the prophet, falls to the ground in terror because being in the presence of the holy always exposes the unholy in us. That's why these shepherds are so afraid because the holy always terrifies the unholy. You may think that's a stretch, but eight days from this passage, eight days after Jesus is born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, will take him to the temple to be circumcised, which was customary on the eighth day. There's this old guy, Simeon walking, it's like 15 verses later from where we are. Simeon's walking around the temple. This old man has been told by the Lord somehow, you're not gonna die until you see the Messiah. And somehow he knows that this baby that Mary and Joseph are carrying is the Messiah. And so he goes up to them and he says, I know the baby you're holding is the Messiah. Now I can die in peace because the Lord told me I'm not gonna die until I see the Messiah. Which if you think about this moment, pretty creepy. Old guy at the temple coming up to an eight day year old, like I know your baby. You know, it's like, (laughs) whoa. But so Simeon says, hey, um, I know about this Messiah and what he came to do. Listen to one of the things that he says to Mary and Joseph about why the Messiah, why this baby was born in the first place. This is in verse 35 of Luke chapter two. He says this, this baby was born so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Other translations would say, the thoughts of many hearts may be exposed. That word thoughts there is a Greek word. It's used many times in the New Testament. It means the innermost thoughts, like the thoughts that you have deep inside of you, the thoughts that you don't tell anyone. And when that word is used in scripture, it's never referred to to refer to someone's good thoughts. It's always the evil thoughts. It's always the dark thoughts. It's always the wretched thoughts, the vile thoughts. And Simeon at the temple just confirmed what these angels are representing to the angels. Simeon just told you that part of the reason why Jesus came is to shine a light on those thoughts, to expose those thoughts, to reveal those thoughts, to make those thoughts known, the thoughts that you can't tell anybody, the thoughts that you have never told anybody, your secrets, the things that lead you to do, the thoughts that start in you that lead you to do all the horrible things that you end up deciding to do started with a thought. Those thoughts, Simeon says, Jesus came to expose and reveal. 
Jesus knows the conversations you have with yourself. Jesus knows you deeper and more intimately than anyone has ever known you. And, and Simeon would say, part of the Messiah's coming is to expose and reveal that dark place in you, to bring it to light. Not even necessarily for the world, but for you. Do you know about all those thoughts? Like before you ever have a fit of rage, you have first thought and believed that your kingdom is the most important thing in the room and other people are getting in the way of that so they deserve your rage now. Or before you ever act out sexually, you have first thought of a fantasy, a fantasy experience that would finally satisfy you. You had that thought and you thought it and then it led to an action. It didn't start as an action, it started as one of these thoughts before you ever judge or slander someone, you've thought deep within you that you're better than them and you're superior to them. And so you feel the right to judge them and to slander them. You've thought it. Simeon would say, the Messiah came to reveal and expose that place in you, to bring all that to light. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Look at the wreaths and the Christmas tree. Aren't we all just in a... <laughs> Jolly good time, it's a, it's, a, it's a season of joy. No, the Messiah came to expose the darkest place in you, the thoughts that you cannot tell people about. Jesus knows about, and he's here to shed light on them. That's in part what's happening to the shepherds here. And they were sore afraid. You can understand it. So that's how we meet the shepherds. That's, that's, the, that's their first encounter with the shepherds on the hillside, these angels and the shepherds. That's how we experience them. They're so afraid. And then fast forward to the end of the story. Go to verse 16 for me in the back. It says, and they, this is the shepherds. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And then verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard and seen as it had been told to them. Verse 16 would say, they went with haste, like joyful excitement and expectation. And then they leave the manger and they're returning back to their villages and their families, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. In other words, there isn't an ounce of fear still in them. They begin our passage by being sore afraid. They end this passage glorifying and praising God and can't helping but telling everyone about what they've just experienced. So what happens to them? How do they go from being sore afraid to exuberant in joy and praise and glorifying God? What happened? How is their fear, their mega fabas fabas, transformed into joy? Well, it's what the angels tell them about this baby. Look at with me again at verses 10 through 14. This is the first angel, the first messenger angel comes to the shepherds and says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, so the angels come, the angel first comes to the shepherds and he knows they're mega fabas fabas and he says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. But you know, if you've ever had like 
a child with a nightmare in the middle of the night or a friend who's experiencing deep fear, anxiety, just telling them not to be afraid doesn't do anything. So when the shepherds experience this megaphobos, phobos, and then the angel says, don't be afraid, that doesn't set them free from their fear. Just the angel saying, hey, don't worry, guys. Like, why are you freaking out? They, they need more than just a, an angel saying to them, don't be afraid. And so the moreness that they get is the whole heavenly host, quadrillions of angels potentially, coming to this hillside in Bethlehem and announcing this in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Other translations like the NIV say this, peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. So the first thing that's said about the coming Christ, the first thing that's said about this baby born in the manger, the first reality of Christmas is the reality of peace. Peace on earth. The advent of Jesus means peace, peace for the world. The Christmas story is all about the arrival of peace. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard that before. So what does it mean? Well, the Bible is really clear about this. The English language is really clear about this. Peace literally means no war. And that may sound oversimplistic, but this is what peace is. There is no war to fight because the kingdom that you're a part of has secured such a victory that there is no more enemy to defeat anymore. So peace is the tranquility. Peace is the calm. Peace is the non-anxious reality of knowing that there is no war to fight anymore. The war is over. Only when the war is truly over can there be peace. If there's still a threat of war, there is no peace. There is not peace in Middle Earth until the ring is destroyed. There is not actual peace until the threat of war is gone. If there's a threat of hostility, if there are still enemies that could still line up on the battlefield, if there's a threat of someone coming at you, you can't be at peace because you have to be prepared for war. There can only be true peace if there is no war. But the angels come to these shepherds and say, peace on earth. So what does he mean by that? What do they mean about that, this Jesus? Certainly that Jesus came to bring peace to the world like peace to the Middle East and peace in the Ukraine and peace in Syria and every other war-torn reality of our world, Jesus came to bring peace to that. But the announcement from the angels, please don't limit it. It's not, it's not wrong or bad, it's just not everything, that Jesus' announcement of peace is only a political peace. And we know that because the angels' message goes far more personal than governmental. The angels don't come and just say, hey, all the wars that Israel ever has to fight are now over. Like there's gonna be peace now politically and, and ge you know, geographically. Like there won't be fighting neighbors anymore. He goes deeper than that. The angel's announcement goes into the heart of humanity. The place where peace goes first in this announcement is into the place where all other wars begin. Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. He's making the peace personal. See, because Jesus' mission was all about ending the war and ending the strife, ending the hostility of the war between the holy and the guilty. That's the war that Jesus first came to bring peace to. 
There was hostility that stood between he and you. There was enmity between he and you. And Jesus came to bring peace to that war first. So the angels are here in Bethlehem saying that this baby in the manger means there is now peace. There is now favor. The posture of God to mankind is now one of favor. And I don't care how many times you've heard it. Like if you've grown up in the church, you've been around, you've heard the Christmas story or you're exploring it and you kind of know that, you know, Christmas means peace on earth. You've heard those carols. Like if you know even vaguely about it, it doesn't matter how familiar you are with this. How many times you've heard that Jesus brings peace, we still think there's war. We still think there's this inner and cosmic war that we have to fight. We still think we hear sirens calling us to arms and calling us to go to battle. We still think there's a war to fight. Here are a few of the battlefields that I know that we feel like there are sirens roaring saying, you have to pick up your sword and go fight for peace here because there is no peace here yet. And it gets a little meta, but there are battlefields in all of your time dimensions. You're like, oh, this is trippy. No, there are battlefields in your past, in your present, and in your future. That the war horns, the sirens that would say, you have to go and fight for peace here. Your past sins will find you out. Your present pain and your present struggle and your present evil is too much to handle. And your future, you can't predict and you can't control. So there's no peace in your future. So the, the threat of war, the threat of no peace comes at us in all of our time dimensions. Sometimes it's only sleep that makes us feel like we're at peace. And then we feel like we're at war in our dreams. Like sometimes the threat of war is everywhere in all of our time dimensions. Every dimension of time and reality threatens our peace. But the angels announce peace. They announce that God's posture, God's position is now one of favor towards man. So the inner war that you're in, Jesus came to bring peace to. The cosmic war that you're in, Jesus came to bring peace to. All the striving you do to bring peace to your standing with God, all the proving you try to do to yourself and everyone else, all the self-hatred, all the promises, all the fighting you do to try to create peace in your past, your present, and your future, Jesus is saying, I've already brought peace to those places. So how did he do it? Well, in some wars, the easiest way to bring peace to the battle lines uh, is for a king just to go wipe out his enemies. Sometimes peace is created by killing off the enemy, but not this God. That's not how God accomplished peace for us. This God decided that instead of killing his enemies, he would die for them instead. that the blood of Jesus is actually what brings us peace. It's what Ephesians 2 is almost all about. The blood of Jesus brings us peace. The war between you and God now has peace because of Jesus's blood. Paul, an old dead friend of mine in the New Testament, says in Romans chapter five, he says it this way, Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we now have peace with God. Justification brings you peace. 
Because do you know what threatens you in your past, your present, and your future is your uncertainty that you are in good standing. You're not quite so sure that all that you've done or all that you will do won't find you out and God won't punish you for it one day. And so justification says your status has now changed. You now have a different position. You've been welcomed into the family and cleaned white as snow by the blood of Jesus. He has washed you and forgiven you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. He has taken care of that now. So now you are justified before him. You've been declared righteous before him. You've been adopted by him. You are now in the family as a permanent member. You've been justified by faith. Because that's true, you have peace with God. In other words, this Messiah that came to expose the innermost thoughts came to expose the real you so that he can show you that he has also come to justify the real you. And that's where real peace is. Those innermost thoughts, the ones that he came to expose and reveal, the ones that show you and remind you of how vile and dark and deep the rottenness goes in you, the mold of the soul that's there in you, that his arrival came to shine light on, came to expose, came to reveal. He also came to justify the real you. How can he do that? How can he, how can he justify the part of us that has those innermost thoughts? Because all that he exposes, he also came to cover. And he has made peace by his blood for all of your sin. He is with you in your current pain and current evil. And he has secured your future. So all of your time dimensions that threaten you that there is a war still to fight and there is no peace in your past, your present, or your future. He has made peace by his blood. So all of your time dimensions are now underneath the peaceful rule of Jesus. No time domain can threaten the victory that Jesus has won for you. You are at peace with God permanently. And then there's this. Not only are you at peace with God, which is great news, but reading it and understanding and meditating on it this way is equally as comforting. It's, it's a two-way street. You're not just at peace with him. That's true. He's at peace with you. And I know that maybe sounds like the same thing, but think about how that would cause you to view him. He's not just at peace. You're just not at peace with him. He's at peace with you. He's not anxious about you. He's at peace with you. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. That God, the offended party in this relationship, initiates the process of making peace with his enemies. This is unheard of. That you need to know that you didn't fight the battle that won your peace. He did. He fought the battle that accomplished your peace, which means he wanted peace with you more than you even wanted it with him because he made it happen. He's pleased with you. His favor rests on you. Like, like the real you, the one with those thoughts, the innermost thoughts that he came to expose to show you the real you. He's at peace with the real you. Not the you you're trying to prove that you are to everyone else. Not the you that you show to people. Not the you that you used to be or the you you hope to be one day. The you that's sitting where you're sitting right now. You. 
He's at peace with the real you, with all the burdens you came in with, with all the shame that you came in with, with all the sin that's currently currently entangling you. He's at peace with you. There's nothing to prove to him. There's no agenda or growth plan with you. There's no achieving to be done. There's no failure to justify to him and explain away. There is peace between God and man. God doesn't view you the way that you think he views you. We've all got this imagination of how God must view us because of who we are, who we aren't. And so subconsciously, our restless heart can't imagine that God is at peace with us because we're not at peace with us. But there are no war horns blowing in our past, our present, or our future. He's at peace with you, which allows for you to be at peace with you. The ultimate war is over. There is peace between God and man. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be wars to fight. That doesn't mean there won't be things to fight against. There doesn't, that doesn't mean that you won't ever get in a quarrel or have strife. That, that's not what this means. It's just not the war that you think you have to be fighting. You don't have to fight that one anymore. The wars from your past, the wars of your present, the wars to secure your future. The ultimate war is over. There is now peace with God, which means this. We now enter all other fights from a place of peace. We can actually be a presence of peace because we know that the ultimate war has been settled. So no matter how things go at home or the office or when you go home for Christmas, like no matter how things unfold, you can actually be starting from a place of peace because nothing about how any of those circumstances might play out can take away the peace that Jesus has actually bought for you. We begin our lives from a place of peace now. You will have to fight for things in this life, but none of the wars can threaten the peace that Jesus has won for you. And so the church embodies this non-anxious, peaceful existence. We are to be the least anxious people on the planet because there is no war to fight for us. We know that the war has been won already. And so now, no matter how these things play out, they can't threaten my peace, my ultimate peace. I can actually be at peace when it feels like I'm in the middle of a war. When you know you're at peace, when you know there is favor from God to man and you are at peace with God and God is at peace with you, when you know that, that's how your fear, your mega fabas fabas can turn into joy. It's knowing and believing that you have God's secure favor and there is peace with God. That if you believe that you are at peace, ultimate peace with God, then your fear can turn into joy. But if you don't deal with your fear, if you don't acknowledge the mega fabas fabas, if you don't deal with the war that is there inside of you and cosmically between you and the Lord, if you don't deal with that and bring all of that underneath the rule of Jesus's peace, you won't ever get to joy because you can never do enough to win that war. And so if you don't actually deal with the mega fabas fabas, if you just act like, oh, everything's fine. I don't actually have anything that I'm afraid of or none of, I don't, I don't actually feel like I'm at war. I can just peace fake. Like some of us are really good peace fakers, not good peacemakers. Like if you can just kind of like act like I'm at peace, you won't ever get to joy. 
Pretending there is peace before you've dealt with the war is not just shallow, it's foolish. No king can announce peace in his kingdom if he, ha- if he knows he hasn't dealt with the enemy on the battle line just outside the town. You have to go deal with the enemy. But knowing there is a war, knowing there is a threat, knowing there is something to be mega fabas fabas afraid of, and then knowing that Jesus has won that war for you and he's now at peace with you, now you can have real joy. That's how you go from mega fabas fabas to joy, is living into receiving the peace of Jesus. But how can we know this? How, how can we not just know that Jesus has accomplished this, how do we know that that's what this baby came to do? And how do we know that the shepherds knew that? Like in their transformation of fear into joy, how do we know that this announcement of peace is what did that to them? This is why I love preaching through biblical narratives, like biblical stories, because so many times the story is the point, like the story embodies the point, the narrative makes the declaration. See, the actions of the shepherds in the passage, their actions confirm for us the fact, even if they didn't understand every bit of theological reality that Jesus would do for them, they understood the magnitude of the announcement of the shepherds. We know they understood at least it in part because of what they did. What did they do in the middle of the night? By the way, they're in the middle of their job. These are night watch shepherds. Most scholars would say and history would say these were probably little kids, like shepherd boy David, like this was a job for little kids in the family. So this is probably little kids. The Bible doesn't say this, we don't know. But these shepherds are in the middle of their night watch job. And what do they do? They go and see, which means they leave. So I know this is probably really hard to understand. Um, If you're a shepherd, you probably shouldn't leave your sheep. That's one of the most basic elements of shepherding. They teach it in Shepherding 101. Like, hey, don't leave. It's partially what makes Jesus' story of the 99, leaving the 99 for the one so powerful. It's like, you can't can't leave sheep. That's your job. You can't leave sheep. That's, That's a problem. Shepherds aren't supposed to leave sheep, but these shepherds do leave sheep, all of them. And more specifically, shepherds in this region... Shepherds in Bethlehem, historically speaking, kept flocks for the purpose of temple sacrifices. Jerusalem wasn't far away. It's where the temple was. Every Jew in the known Roman Empire would travel to Jerusalem multiple times a year for sacrifices. There were daily and weekly sacrifices that went on. The the need for sheep to be slaughtered was large. And the sacrificial system that these first century Jews inhabited was the sacrificial system that the people of God used to try to appease the righteous wrath of God in the war between God and man. It was actually how Old Testament Jews would clamor for the peace of God with, in between them. If we can sacrifice this spotless lamb, then we can actually plead with you, look on the blood of this lamb and be at peace with us because of, you've, already, you've already gotten the bloodshed you require for this. So they would clamor for peace of conscience and peace with God through their sacrificial system. It's a big deal to them. And these shepherds leave the sacrificial sheep behind. 
Here's what they're saying. If this Messiah is here and these angels are telling the truth and these angels are saying, we now have God's permanent favor towards us and we are at peace with him, we don't need the bloodshed of these sheep anymore. His favor has already been secured for us. We don't know how. They didn't know that this baby Jesus was gonna grow up and die on a cross. They had no idea. But something about this declaration, God is now in a posture of favor towards you because of the arrival of this baby, gave them the courage and the faith to leave the sacrificial sheep behind. If they believed it even an ounce, then they would have left their sheep in a heartbeat. These particular sheep these sheep for the slaughter will no longer be needed. And that reality gave them the courage to leave and go find this baby in a manger. They left their sheep to go and find the lamb of God who would be the final sacrifice. And the night that this lamb of God was born in Bethlehem began his countdown clock to Calvary. See, the day the angel showed up, Jesus, even as a baby, it was, it was the, the days had been set before him that he would grow up and turn his face like flint towards Jerusalem one day, 33 years later. And he would know that he had been born to die, born to rob us of our sin, born to bear our shame. And as this lamb of God hung undressed on crossbeams. He cried out in dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus's cry of great fear. Maybe Jesus only more than the shepherds was more afraid than these shepherds in Luke 2. As he hung naked on a cross, his mega fabas fabas, his greatest fear came true. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does not hear a response that says, fear not, you have nothing to be afraid of. He was not told to not be afraid. His father actually abandoned him. His father actually confirmed his greatest fears. I am turning my back on you. Why would the Lamb of God do this? Jesus lost his peace with God so that you could have it. And now this act, this peace-securing act of Jesus now screams louder at your fears, your megaphobas fabas, than the whole host of heavenly angels that, that yelled and, and sung to the shepherds that day, that night in Bethlehem. The act of Jesus is louder than your greatest fear. They had to go out on a hope that we could leave our sacrificial sheep behind. We now know that the sacrificial system is over. Jesus lost his peace with God so that you could have it, which means this, for your past, your present, and your future, you cannot be abandoned by God because Jesus already was for you. So all the places that you think Jesus or the Lord would leave you, he would leave you to deal with your past sins if they find you out. He would leave you in your present with your pain and your evil. And he would leave you in your future to fend for yourself. You cannot be abandoned by God because Jesus already was. And so on that first Christmas night, these angels come to tell these outcast shepherds on a hillside outside Bethlehem about what his arrival meant for them. I was reading about this this week, this week in a great book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. It's wonderful. He goes through a lot of New Testament stories and kind of how would a first century Middle Easterner hear and see these and experience these stories. 
Here's what he, he made this observation, which is, is profound, that these angels come to the shepherds and they say, hey, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to whom, on whom his favor rests. And this is good news of great joy for all the people. A savior has been born to you, but they don't believe it yet. They're not sure yet. They go out in faith and hope that it could be true. But then the angels say this, they say, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That, when it, whenever... Whenever there's a message from a prophet or a speaker and then they say, and here's a sign, uh, what they're saying is, is there's a sign that you're gonna see or taste or feel or touch and that's gonna, the sign is gonna confirm the announcement. Like you're not sure if you can believe it yet, let me give you a sign. Let me give you something you can touch and see. So here's your sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And I always thought, well, that's because the angels send them on this like Bethlehem scavenger hunt. And it's like, when you get to this place and you'll see, like, you'll know like the flashing lights. This is how you'll know. But it's so much more than just like giving them a clue on how to find the baby. They're actually telling the shepherds, when you see this baby, you're gonna know that everything we're saying is true. He actually did come for outcast. He actually came for people with vile thoughts. He actually came for the lowly. He actually came for the dirty. See, because from their point of view, if this, if this baby really is the Messiah, then they would have expected to find him at a palace or at least at some kind of, maybe the temple, they would expect to find him in some upper echelon uh, birthplace. And so the angels anticipate the doubt and the anxiety the shepherds are gonna have because they're going, wait, 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 we're supposed to go find this baby in the town and you're not telling us to go to the temple well, we're lowly outcast shepherds that are unclean. We've been barred from anything holy or religious and we're supposed to go find this holy Messiah. If we come to the family, they're not gonna let us touch him. They're not, they're not gonna let us see him. We're not allowed to be around holy things. So the angels know this and they say, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger and this is the clue for them. That's how peasants were born. The shepherds would have known that's what we do with our newborn children. We wrap them in cloths and lie them in mangers. We don't have room for them anywhere else. Like wrap them in swaddling cloths is not like the really nice thing that your grandma gives you to wrap your newborn in. It's like dirty old rags. It would have been equivalent of the angels saying to the shepherds, go find your Messiah in the garbage dump. Because that's the kind of lowly estate he came to be born into because that's the kind of savior he is. And then to give them the courage and the confidence to go and say, hey, go, go find this, this baby, this Messiah, because he came for you and no one's gonna tell you unclean shepherds be gone. They're gonna welcome you in because that's the kind of Messiah this is. So whether you believe it or not, whether you're not sure whether you've grown unfamiliar, whether you're exploring Christianity for the first time, here's what the Christmas story is all about. It's all about the story of a God who comes to expose and cover his people's sin. It's all about a God. It's all about a Messiah who comes to bring peace through the war that he would fight and he would end. It's all for the outcast. It's all for the lowly. It's all for those who are too dirty to be welcomed in, but Jesus has cleaned you up and brought you in. It's the story of a God who entered time and space to bleed for his enemies, to tell them that there is peace. Let's pray. Jesus, lowly, lowly, lowly Jesus. It's 
hard not just to believe that we're at peace with you, but that you're at peace with us. And now to hear the angel's announcement. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth to those on whom your favor rests. But this is what this baby came to do. This, this baby came to grow up. This baby came to give his life away to lose his peace with you so that we might have it. Humble us with that, Jesus, but more than that, transform our fear into joy by the peace that is ours. Knowing that there is nothing we can do to lose that peace and that we might be a people who embody that peace because it is so secure. Guide us now as we sing this out, this closing out. Guide us this Advent as we, as we leave this place and go into our worlds that we would be a people of peace because peace is ours because of you, Jesus. Make us like these shepherds, joyful deliverers of this good news. We pray in your name, amen.